Welcome to The Lawyerist Podcast, a series of discussions with entrepreneurs and innovators about building a successful law practice in today's challenging and constantly changing legal market. Lawyerist supports attorneys building client-centered and future-oriented small law firms through community, content, and coaching, both online and through The Lawyerist Lab. And now, from the team that brought you the Small Firm Roadmap and your podcast hosts. Hi, I'm Ashley Steckler. And I'm Zach Glazer. And this is episode 437 of the Lawyers Podcast, part of the Legal Talk Network. Today, I interview Matthew Butterick about artificial intelligence in the law. Today's podcast is brought to you by Gavel, Posh Virtual Receptionist, and Clio. We wouldn't be able to do this show without their support. Stay tuned and we'll tell you more about them later on. So Zach, we have been using OpenAI for a lot of interesting endeavors in the office. As we always do, we like to experiment, right? We like to stay up on information and make sure that we're thought forward in how we're going to use it, but mm-hmm. also experiment and test to make sure that it's working for what we want it to do. We spend very little time playing around in ways that don't make things easier for us. Mm-hmm. On company time. On company time. <laughs> yes, for sure. on company time we need to make sure that it's actually making our jobs more efficient with Mm -hmm. better output so we've been using OpenAI and ChatGPT for a number of different things and I know that you've been playing around what's your favorite thing that you've used it for so far that's helped us speed up our systems yeah so I ask it a lot of questions I have a tendency to use the OpenAI chat GPT to outline things. I usually have it take a first pass at anything kind of content related that I do. So if I'm writing an article, even comparing very specific products, if I'm writing an article, then I'll have chat GPT take a swipe at it. Then my job instead of becoming somebody writing something out of whole cloth, my job is then to edit it and to fact check it, you know, as the expert looking at this thing and saying, is that right? Because chat GPT will have a tendency to hallucinate sometimes. It honestly doesn't care about the validation. It it doesn't validate. It doesn't care about the veracity of the statements that it creates because it kind of can't. So we have to, as users of it, worry about whether or not something is correct. And so I I tend to let it take a first swipe at things. And it saves me a lot of time because a a lot of my time is spent outlining things as, as a lot of lawyers do. For sure. So another thing that we noticed this week in our just playing around with ChatGPT is you asked it a question about Lawyerist Lab and we got Mm -hmm. some interesting output. Yeah. So I wanted to know, I specifically asked it, is Lawyerist Lab beneficial for a small firm lawyer? And I really wanted to know if it, if it could reason in any way or if it, it could even feign reasoning in any way. And the output that we got, it honestly doesn't matter what it is, you know, kind of for our purposes for public, you know, mm-hmm. we got good output. But the output that we got, more importantly, is telling 
for us because ChatGPT is not going out there and just creating information out of nothing. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's not like Immanuel Kant. Like it's not just like coming up with new ideas. It is synthesizing information for the most part and then creating things. So the answer to that question is then what is the info that is out there on lawyer's lab? So the answer to that question isn't so much important as what the answer to the question is. You know, it it tells us a lot more than what the actual answer to the question is. It tells us what is out there about lawyer's lab. Mm-hmm. And I think that lawyers could use this for their own purposes, with their own companies, with their own businesses to say, what is it that my firm looks like to the public? Yeah. And does that jive with what I want it to look That's like? Right. Is that on brand? For sure. Yeah. So I think the interesting takeaway for us was ChatGPT, the output that it gave was consistent Mm -hmm. with how we conceptualize our ideal client and the benefits that the program provides to that ideal client. Mm -hmm. And so lawyers can think about that and using, right, merging these two pathways together that we've been talking about and say, can I use it for an outline to start out with a blog or other piece of content that I want to put on my website to make useful for potential clients? But then also using it to build and test on whether mm-hmm. or not the stuff that's already out there about your firm is directed at your ideal client, speaks to them, is in your voice, has your brand, and is consistent. Mm-hmm. It's another way of kind of doing SWOT testing or oppositional research or or figuring yeah. out what it is that your that your company is putting forward. And as awkward as that is sometimes to do your own searches on your own business or your own name, it's imperative. It's always telling. And yep. maybe this is a less awkward way of doing it. Maybe saying, you know, is Lawyerist Lab worth it to a small law firm is more comfortable than going and just Googling that. Or do we say binging that? I don't think so. Duck, duck, going. <laughs> that's, that's what yes. I usually do. Yes. Right. You call it Googling, but you actually duck, duck, go it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So there's some ideas, practical implementations to consider when we're all talking about ways we can and can't use this type of technology. Mm-hmm. There's some really easy solutions here. Yeah. And I think that's a really good way of saying like lawyers can use this and it's not practicing law. Like it, no. we just saw that it, the chat GPT-4 got 90% on the bar exam recently, and that has implications. But these are things that you can do tomorrow that don't right. have any implications like that and can can deal with it. Yeah, that'll help you and your potential clients. Mm-hmm. Now here's Zach's conversation with Matthew. Hi, I'm Matthew Butterick, and I am a writer, designer, programmer, and lawyer. I am the author of the book, Typography for Lawyers, and recently plaintiff's co-counsel on two pending lawsuits challenging generative AI systems, namely GitHub Copilot and the lawsuit challenging the image generator stable diffusion. Matthew, thank you for joining me. I really appreciate it. I quite honestly, when I started talking on this podcast, I thought I might speak with you, but I had no idea that it was going to be AI related. 
So I've had your book, Typography for Lawyers, in my bookshelf since I got out of law school in 2011. So it is odd to not really be talking to you about that, but that's just as a, as a little plug, it is a fantastic book. And I think we've had Sam talk with you about that and typography and kind of design for lawyers before. So I appreciate you being on the, on the podcast again. Of course, my pleasure. And Lawyerist has, has been a friend of typography for many years. So thank you to all of you. Of course, I, when I started that project and people would say, do you really expect to this typography for lawyers to take effect. And I said, well, it's going to be a long-term process, right? Because, mm -hmm. you know, students are going to be reading it now and then 10, 15, 20 years, they're going to be gathering positions of power and be, be able to, to really, uh, you know, <laughs> inflict these rules. So I feel like we're just <laughs> reaching the really good part of the typography project uh, in the next 10 years. So Right. When we bring everything out of the Century Schoolbook font family and, exactly. and start using actual font yeah, families the, the, in our, the in our fruits pleadings. of my labor are finally being realized. So, uh, yes. Well, I really would love to, to chat with you about that for a while. But what we really wanted to kind of talk about was the generative AI suits that you have and you and your co-counsel have going on against a large group, large swath of different types of generative AI. And what I think might be helpful initially is to talk about if you wouldn't mind describing what that really is, generative AI, what is it these things are doing in common that have caused the issues broadly, I guess? Sure. Well, the, the first case that I was involved with, which was filed back in November, was the case against Microsoft and OpenAI for this product, GitHub Copilot. Mm -hmm. And Copilot is an AI-assisted I guess you could call it software editing tool. What you do is you open up your software code editor and you, you know, type some code, like you, a function that you might want to write, like I'm mm -hmm. writing a function to test if a number is prime. And yeah. what Copilot will do is suggest the rest of the code that you might have written. So it will, as soon as it sees the, oh, you know, Butterick is trying to write a, a function to test primality, here's the body of a function that that might work. And then you mm -hmm. can accept or reject that suggestion. So essentially this, this idea of generative AI is in the Copilot case, it's generating software code that you can incorporate into your own, into your own document. And in the case of uh, you know, stable diffusion, that's probably a, a much more popular product because I know like software is a little nerdy, but uh, <laughs> right. a lot of people have used the image generator. Well, it's been amazing to see the really global attention, not to, you know, the case itself, but just mm -hmm. to stable diffusion and because there's just millions and millions of people using it and the controversies uh, around it, which again, we did not, we, the lawyers didn't start, you know, stable diffusion for your listeners who haven't heard is a, again, an AI image generator. You step up and you put in a, what's called a text prompt, right? Mm -hmm. a, a line of text, maybe two sentences or so describing what you want to see. For instance, a in our complaint, we talk about a puppy dog wearing a baseball cap, eating an ice cream cone or something. Mm -hmm. And then again, the AI system tries to generate an image that matches that prompt. And sometimes it does well, sometimes it doesn't do so well. Uh, but, uh, but there you go. That's what makes it fun for people. And in both cases, what we're claiming, however, is that the link between what comes out of the system and what goes into the system is, is the real issue. Because mm -hmm. the GitHub Copilot has been trained on billions of lines of open source code, most of which is available on this GitHub website. And right. similarly, the stable diffusion 
AI system has been trained on billions of images found out on the internet, many of which are, are copyrighted. So mm -hmm. there are some pretty difficult, interesting, and novel questions about whether the way this training material is being used really complies with, with the law. And that's what these cases are, are setting out to discover. As far as we know, these are the first two lawsuits about generative AI in the United States, in the world, anywhere, in the cosmos. <laughs> They're certainly the first two that I found. You know what? Other other alien species have already invented generative AI and already done these cases. <laughs> they, so it would be cool to find out. Yeah. If we had jurisdiction. Exactly. Yeah. If we could just get into separate jurisdictions. So I think kind of to back up a little bit, some of the guts of these complaints, the cases are that this AI, these models have to be trained on something. And like you said, kind of like billions of images or billions of lines of code. And this code or images, they have to come from somewhere. And so for the example with Copilot, it comes from the GitHub repository. And just to kind of explain that, like what, what exactly is the GitHub repository for people that don't have familiarity with, or actually it might be easier to explain what the, like the DeviantArt repository is for the image case instead. DeviantArt is a website that's been around, as I understand it, about 20 years and has been a community of visual artists and been a place where they could make their own art and put it up and, and share it with mm -hmm. fans, other artists, and so forth. In fact, it's somewhat similar to GitHub, which for many years, not 20 years, but I think 10 or 15 years, GitHub was started, which GitHub became sort of a crossroads of the global open source community and, and mm -hmm. software programmers would put up the word you use repository is that sort of represents a single project on GitHub where you might store your, your open source code. So both GitHub and DeviantArt were these communities where people would share their work. That's right. Mm -hmm. But the thing is, on GitHub, every repository or a lot of them are covered by an open source license. And an open source right. license is not some sort of joke. It's a real legally binding contract. They've been litigated for many years. That's like, mm -hmm. they're the real deal. And what sort of trips people up is they hear, oh, open source software, isn't that the software that's free and that you can get a copy of it and you can modify it? That's true, but you do have to follow the provisions in the license. Mm -hmm. And when you use that open source code, for instance, some of the provisions in the license are that you have to preserve attribution to the original author of the code. You mm -hmm. have to preserve the author's copyright notices. You have to often include a copy of the license from that code. So... If you don't do these things, you are not entitled to use the code at all, right? It's right. it's almost as if you're you're just pirating any other software. So, you know, that's been a big issue because with the Copilot service from really the first week it was launched in a in, you know, in a beta format, people were noticing that it would emit big chunks of recognizable code from open source repositories and mm -hmm. it wouldn't carry the licenses that that code had, or it would emit an incorrect license. Mm -hmm. So there started to be questions from the programmer community right away. And again, a similar thing with, with DeviantArt and you know, artists worldwide seeing these AI generators. In Stable Diffusion's case, they use this data set called Lion, which mm -hmm. is a, a list of URLs developed by a, a German consortium. 
But the point is that we, so we know exactly what's in the training set because that's open to inspect. And artists went into this training set and found out, oh, my art's in there. I'm part of the training set. Well, nobody asked my permission. And, and again, what's happening to this art? You know, how is it being emitted on the other side? So mm -hmm. uh, again, the AI companies so far have sort of stepped up with these services and said, well, we think uh, we're entitled to do this under fair use is something we hear a lot about. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I think that's going to be a big question in these cases is whether, whether fair use really does allow them to do what they're doing. That's ultimately at least one portion of this, of these matters, what it kind of goes down to is that idea of fair use, because it does have a little bit of the idea of sampling in hip hop, you know, the idea of sampling some music that is already there and you bring it into something that you're doing. Because as you said, or as you guys have said in these complaints, the system is not creating anything really whole cloth. It's going into these photographs or going into these repositories and grabbing pieces of them and putting them together somehow, right? Well, certainly that's our claim in these, in these lawsuits. And mm -hmm. this is not an opinion that everybody on the internet shares. And we know that there's certainly a lot of opinions about mm -hmm. what's really going on under the hood of these systems. And part of the problem is there isn't a lot of transparency really yet. Right. Well, we know about, for instance, the data set used by Stable Diffusion, but we don't know everything that they've done with that data set and how they reached the product that they have. And, and the same thing with Microsoft and OpenAI. They've published papers about Copilot and, and Codex, which is a, an underlying technology that's in Copilot. Mm -hmm. So we know a little bit about it, but we don't know everything about it. So that's part of what the litigation is about, obviously, is, is finding out more. And I, I think that's going to be really essential to determining the legal ramifications is we need to really inspect these systems close up. I would say as, as a lifelong technologist, one of the frustrating parts of this whole debate has been the people who will say, oh, but what it is, is a magic black box. And it's like little bits of brain <laughs> sauce floating around. And they really say things like this. And you say, no, it's an artifact of a software program. We can understand it. We can inspect it. We can interrogate it. And we need to, we need to, we need to look what happens to that data going in, trace it, see what happens to it. That's when we're going to find out what's really going on. And it's, it's a necessary uh, step. You know, I, I think that's a funny or interesting kind of juxtaposition of, you know, this idea of open source and then these things that are using this open source that are making themselves into a black box. You know, open source, obviously, it doesn't mean free software. It means that we have opened up the source of this software for its inspection. And it's interesting to me that that's one of the kind of issues here. Is that potentially one of or one of the initial solutions in this kind of AI sort of area of do we need to make these data sets inspectable? Is that a word? Able to be inspected by somebody, you know, whether it's publicly inspected or inspected by some sort of, you know, agency that is tasked with that. I think that's a great question. I mean, I, I just in the same way that we have nutritional labels on food mm -hmm. so that people can pick it up and then see what's in it. Right. Uh, I think that there's going to be some interesting questions about whether AI products are going to end up with some kind of similar labeling, not just for you know fairness and ethics, though those things are, are also good, but mm -hmm. again, for the legality of the situation. With Copilot and with the image generators, 
And now because we're on lawyerist, we can get a little nerdy about the law. Folks, if you <laughs> if you want to have a laugh, go and look at the terms of service of these things and see what they say about the legal status of the, you know, the code that comes out or, or the right. images that come out. It's very uh, nebulous, exactly. They, they really, <laughs> these companies really resist making any claims about, do you own it? Is there a copyright? Is there this? Can I use a commercial? Like, we don't really know. That's going to be kind of your problem. And I just kind of feel like long-term, just that is not sustainable. And that kind of we can zoom out and we can start to see a macro question of how are AI systems going to be made compatible with the rule of law? And right. I really like because, as you say, we can't just say that now in our culture and society, we have these kind of huge, expensive black boxes of software that we're entrusting with all these decisions. And, well, we just don't know what they do. And it's fine with us. Like, that doesn't work. There's nothing else like that in, in human society. Like everything has to kind of come back to a human agency and accountability. And that's maybe the I don't know if it's a scary thing, but certainly even these wonderful AI researchers who work on these projects sometimes reach a point of saying, like, well, we don't even know completely how they do what they do. But I think somebody's going to have to know how they do what they do, or they're going to be limited in how far they can be trusted and used. Right. I think ultimately that's part of the issue here. You know, like, yes, the specific question in these cases, or at least one of the specific questions in, in these cases, is a fair use question. And I think that's, it's a legitimate question. How, how much of something does one have to use before they have to make attributions? I think obviously another issue in these is, is literally the GitHub's terms of service initially when people put their information onto the service. But broadly, we do have to figure out some way of dealing with these machines that are able to process more information than, than we as human beings can. I can't go in and fully actually inspect the data sets that these are using as a human. Now, I mean, I, I could use another tool to do it, but I, I couldn't do that as a human. And I think that's scary to people, but it's also, we have to shift our mindset of how we are regulating things, how we are dealing with some of these pieces of software. I think you're right. And by the way, I want to interject to whoever is listening to this podcast and thinking, how did Mr. Typography for Lawyers end up on these cases? <laughs> it's a great story. I'm not doing it alone. I'm co-counsel with um, a, a wonderful lawyer named Joe Severi, who's got uh, his own law firm up in San Francisco, antitrust class action. He's been practicing for 30 or 35 years. Just a wonderful guy. And the great thing is that Joe has been a fan of my book and my fonts for many years. And we kind of corresponded when he set up his current firm. So when I did a, a blog post about GitHub Copilot about six or eight months ago, he saw it and he said, you know, this is really interesting what you're talking about. Maybe we should investigate this more. And Joe, if, you know, if he were here, he would be telling us that this is you know, something that he's seen over and over in decades of, of litigation against the, the tech industry, right? I mean, you, you know, this new technology surfaces and people want to push it really far, really fast as soon as they can. And, uh, you know, we talk about this also for your listeners who remember Napster, right? 20 mm -hmm. or 20, 
odd years ago, which kind of birthed the internet music streaming idea. And everybody was loved it because nothing like it existed. Of course, it was also completely giant copyright infringement all the time. But two, <laughs> two camps emerged, right? There was the camp of people who said, oh, you can't put the genie back in the bottle. Streaming music's here to stay. Like, stop shouting at clouds, you old Luddites. And then there mm -hmm. were people who said, yeah, but it's copyright infringement. And the thing is, both people ended up right. Both groups ended up being right because right. though Napster was sued into oblivion, it cleared the decks. And after that, we had companies like Apple and Spotify and others say, hey, we've got a better idea. Let's bring the rights holders in. Let's make deals with them. Mm -hmm. I know some people would say the deals were not great, but at least they brought, you know, they, they brought the rights holders in and they said, let's make this service legal and fair. Well, again, we could debate about the fairness. At right, least it was right. legal though. At least it was ethical. <laughs> they, they went out and got their data from the people who owned it. They got consent. They got compensated. So, and I feel like the streaming services we have now are a lot better than Napster. So I also feel like I mean, I'm interested in AI. I think it's wonderful. I think it is going to be a big part of the technology scene. And we just sort of have to get through this, whatever you want to call it, this early Napster style phase, because I really think that everybody is going to have that dawning realization that it's better for everyone. It's not just a matter of, of being nice to artists. It actually lets you make better products with stronger guarantees for your customers. Everybody's going to like these services better when they're built on whatever it is, licensed data, ethically sourced data. Right. You know, this isn't just about let's stop AI. We're, we're not, you know, smashing the, the looms right now. You know, <laughs> it's not at all about, <laughs> not at all about stopping AI. And again, this is something that, I mean, I, somebody sent me a, a friend sent me a tweet where someone was claiming that I personally was going to bring down the global geopolitical order because Butterick just wants to stop all AI. And that means it's going to hand China this insurmountable advantage and the United States is now over and it's Butterick's fault. Really, that's not what I want. If that was you that tweeted that, uh, it, really, please. I'm amazed that we got somebody that powerful on the Lawyer's Podcast. I'm just, know. you know, I'm just happy to be here at this point. Sometimes, yeah, yeah, sometimes, Zach, the anger that surfaces when you talk to people that maybe their AI tool is not quite legal, it's mm -hmm. interesting. I, I can't quite put my finger. Do you have any sense of that? Why, why people get bent out of shape when you say maybe your toy will not persist? <laughs> you know, I, I think that's an interesting thing to talk about. And, I, and I'd like to grab that thought when we come back here. We're going to take a word from, from our sponsors real quick, and then we'll be back with Matthew Butterick talking about why we get bent out of shape about, you know, somebody kind of stopping our toys from moving forward. The Lawyer's Podcast is brought to you by Posh Virtual Receptionists. As an attorney, do you ever wish you could be in two places at once? You could take a call while you're in court capture a lead during a meeting, or schedule an appointment with a client while you're elbow deep in an important case? Well, that's where Posh comes in. Posh is a team of professional, U.S.-based live virtual receptionists who are available 24-7, 365. They answer and transfer your calls so you never miss an opportunity. With Posh handling your calls, you can devote more time to billable hours and building your law firm, and the convenient Posh app puts you in total control of when your receptionist steps in. So if you can't answer, Posh can. And if you've got it, Posh is always just a tap away. With Posh, you can save as much as 40% off your current service provider's rates. Even better, Posh is extending a special offer to Lawyerist listeners. Visit posh.com forward slash Lawyerist to learn more and start your free trial of Posh Live Virtual Receptionist Services. That's posh.com 
forward slash lawyerist and by Clio. What do solo and small firm lawyers with great client relationships have in common? They use cloud-based legal practice management software to run their law firms. This is just one finding from Clio's latest legal trends report. There's no getting around it. The fact is, when it comes to client expectations, standards are higher than ever before for lawyers. Proof is in the numbers. 88% of lawyers using cloud-based software report good relationships with clients. For firms not in the cloud, barely half can say that. That gap is significant. For more information on how cloud software creates better client relationships, download Clio's Legal Trends Report for free at clio.com slash trends. That's Clio, spelled C-L-I-O, dot com slash trends. And by Gavel. In the next 10 years, 90% of legal services will be delivered online by lawyers. Gavel, previously called Documate, is the software platform for lawyers to build client-facing legal products. With Gavel, collect client intake, feed that data into robust document automation flows, and collect payments to scale your practice. Companies like Landlord Legal, Just Tech, and Hello Divorce are built on Gavel for both internal and client-facing automation. Sign up for a free trial now at gavel.io slash partnership slash lawyerist and get $100 off your subscription. Or you can book a time at gavel.io slash partnership slash lawyerist to get a free consultation on incorporating automation into your practice. And we're back with, with Matthew Butterick and we're talking about artificial intelligence in the law and kind of how we're really how we're thinking about potentially regulating or, or what needs to be regulated. And Matthew, before the break, you brought up something about people getting bent out of shape when thinking about you're stopping me from using this new toy and just don't stop me. You know, I don't care if it's if it's infringing upon somebody else's rights. It's inevitable. I think it's just just selfish. You know, I, I think there just is a selfishness that is there. And when you can take the name off of somebody, when you when you look at, at let's say, Unsplash online, Unsplash is a website where you can go get what most people would say free photographs to use on your website. Well, if you look at the actual terms and conditions, these photographs are supposed to be used originally. They were supposed to be used as placeholders to help you build websites, not for a commercial money generating website. And now I swear, I see this one specific guy with a big red beard um, in a blue suit playing the lawyer on everybody's website now that comes from these Unsplash things. And I think we just forget that these people that create these things have value you know, and, and had value in this. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess I also, I think there's something to that. And I guess I also think, you know, reflect on my own experience. I mean, mostly in the last 30 years, I, I, I actually didn't practice law for the last 12 years. I was, I was inactive. I've just been doing all this typography for lawyers stuff, but you know, most of my work is as a designer and a writer and a programmer. And right. I, I spend a lot of time on that stuff, like practicing and getting good and, and, and suffering. And I think that, you know, with, with these image generators, you're giving someone, it's almost like a superpower. Suddenly mm -hmm. you, you never knew how to draw, you never knew how to make an image and suddenly you can do it. And if someone comes along and tells you, no, I'm taking it out of your, your hands. I don't know. It, it feels like, like why well, I, I had it. I mean, I, I feel like the, the reaction to something like chat GPT has been interesting and a little more, how shall we say mixed. And I feel mm -hmm. like, I wonder if that's because people tend to have more experience 
like firsthand experience as writers. So they kind mm. of can, can feel like they know what it means to generate their own words and be responsible for it. Whereas many fewer people have the experience of generating their own full color groovy images, right? So I think the way that chat GPT kind of you know, weaves things together and doesn't tell the truth that hits people in a different way because it, again, that's a skill that they they do have, and they can they can reflect on how it feels. So I wonder if sometimes it's like, and that's how artists feel when when they see these <laughs> these systems being used. And you know what? For me, again, as a designer and programmer, the big problem with these systems, again, it's not AI. It's like I just think it's just not fun. I mean, to me, mm-hmm. making things is about learning things and the process. It's not just about getting a result. Like that's almost the, the tiniest slice of it. So. It's interesting to sort of go on to social media threads and see people exchanging tips for it's like, oh, well, I spent 10 hours putting prompts into mid-journey. It's like, why not spend 10 hours actually learning how to to draw? I I mean, I'm just kidding. You're going to put in the time. uh, Why not? But, you know, it's like all the people who 15 years ago put all that time into learning to play guitar here really well. If they had just put it into guitar, that would be a skill that they could continue to enjoy. Absolutely. Absolutely. But I do think that there's a level of abstraction that comes when we do these things where now we as users, as photographers, don't necessarily have to think about f-stop and all the, the things that one would think about in a SLR camera, a non-digital SLR camera. And yes, we don't necessarily have that skill, but theoretically, there is a derivative sort of skill that comes out of that. And I wonder if that's something that we're moving toward or, you know, that, that people are excited about. Okay. Yes. I don't know how to play the guitar, but I do know how to play guitar hero, which means that I can take digital guitar, you know, riffs and put it onto TikTok. Let's say, you know, you can see how creative I am. So I I wonder if, if that's kind of the, is it almost inevitable that these things happen? We, we move and put more abstraction on top of the art, the creativity that we, that we do and have. I think the answer, I mean, that's a great question. I think the answer is there's just, there's going to be different tools for different sort of people, right? I Mm -hmm. also, I don't do it professionally, but I do music in my spare time and I do some like recording on the computer and, you know, you can do whatever you want. If you want to set up a drum kit and record it, you can do that. Mm -hmm. Or if you want to, you know, download loops of, of beats and put that into your track and use it that way. So if you want to make it easy, you can make it easy. But here's the thing. If you want to use those loops, they've all been licensed, right? They're all in Mm -hmm. in the clear. So I think we just kind of keep coming back to this issue where if people want image generators, I think they should have image generators. I just think that the image generator that they have should, you know, have fairly and ethically sourced data and best for everybody. Yeah. That does bring me back to that Napster example, though. Like, is there really a way that we can have fairly and ethically sourced data? You know, because I'm from Nashville. Artists that create songs do not get paid enough. They, they, they don't. Artists that record songs do not get paid enough. Artists that record songs that go on to films and things like that, they don't get paid enough. I, and I don't think they got the proper end of this bargain. And is there even a way for the creators in GitHub or you know elsewhere to get the proper end of this bargain? Well, that's a great question. Like we alluded to earlier, when the, the streaming services, the legal streaming services arrived, mm-hmm. deals were made for the recordings. And yeah, a lot of musicians said, wait a minute, streaming a song is a lot worse than selling a song. And I don't know. I mean, if you're, you're asking, like, if we have AI licensing, will it really be worth it? I mean, I have to, it's just, it can't be a sort of a situation where 
you know, it can be done. That's the thing. I mean, I think uh, yes. there's this company Shutterstock. I, I, you can fact check me on this. I believe Shutterstock, the stock image company, just announced an image generator that is only trained on Shutterstock images. Now, to me, that's a great idea here because Shutterstock has already got rights to these, you know, X number of images, and they're mm -hmm. putting that in as the training data. And then they're saying to customers, well, when you generate an image with this, whatever comes out, I think they're saying you can use it, you know, on the same terms that you could use any other Shutterstock image. So I think that these companies can definitely make these deals if they want to. The right. thing is, it just, it takes time and money and they'd rather not. I mean, you alluded earlier to GitHub's terms of service, you know, mm -hmm. a year and a half ago or whatever, when the preview version of Copilot first came out, folks online put the question to the current or the, the then CEO of, of GitHub Copilot. They said, why do you think you have the legal right to use all this code? And he didn't say because of the GitHub terms of service. He did not say that. He said because of fair use. He said it's fair use. And the question is, why would he say it's fair use? And I think there's a pretty obvious answer. It's because, you know, Microsoft and GitHub's appetite for data you know, over the long term is not just what's on GitHub, right. it's everything in the dataverse and they want it, you know, without consent and they want it for free and mm -hmm. they want it forever. That's what they want. And the only way they meet all those, tick all those boxes is if it's fair use, right? Because that's, that's the magic ticket. So <laughs> I think that it's, it's, well, really. And I think that's all, all, yeah. all these, these kind of first generation AI companies are stepping up and saying, yeah, we want it to be fair use. And all right. Well, we got to have that. We got to have that conversation then. Well, I I think, and I'm probably going to go way too long with this interview, but I I think by opening up this door, the question then is, what's fair use? What's the point of fair use? The point of fair use is to allow people to create derivative works. In my mind, you know, to use some sort of creativity to put two things together. And can at this point, an AI model actually have creativity? to put two things together. Yes, it's putting, it could potentially be putting two things together, but then you go with who's fair use. Is it Copilot's fair use or the user of Copilot's fair use? So, you know, with fair use, we're trying to say, yes, we want people to be creative and we don't want people to be able to just, you know, jealously guard their own art, but there has to be some sort of creativity on top of that. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And I think, you know, those that, that say, you know, copyright isn't supposed to be completely a, you know, a way for owners of, of artworks to sort of be gatekeepers is true. I mean, fair use is important. Mm -hmm. It's there for a reason. It's there for, to enable these new uses. Though I think one thing that you see in pretty consistently in the, the discourse about fair use, and maybe many things, but the, the one, the kind of red line is, you know, when you're making something that really substitutes for the work that you were, you're using. And mm -hmm. I think that's mm -hmm. a big question in these systems. I mean, generative AI just kind of brings that question right to the fore, which is if these systems are designed to be substitutes for their training data, you know, <laughs> what is that going to mean legally? I re really? And I mean, yeah. folks have, folks contact me and say, oh, we did this case before Butterick. It was called Authors Guild versus Google, or it was called Perfect 10. And mm -hmm. those, those cases happened. But again, I think there was something a little bit different about copyrighted materials being harvested for their metadata to make some kind of search index. If it's being used for search index, index, excuse me, the search index is 
engine is pointing at that underlying work, right? Right. For instance, if you use Google today and you use their image search, it brings up all the thumbnails and it, you know, you can click on them and it says, and, and this is where this image is and this image, and it tells you, you know, where you can find the real image. But when you use an image generator, an AI image generator, it doesn't point to anything, right? Mm -hmm. When you ask for a dog with a baseball hat wearing, you know, eating an ice cream cone, it doesn't say, so here are some images that are, you know, like that. No, it doesn't do that. It just makes its little collage, its pastiche, and, and presents it to you as a, as a fait accompli. And of course, as we know, I'm, I'm, you, you're, you and your listeners may have seen, there was this uh, opinion from the US Copyright Office a week or two ago about the uh, first big opinion I think they've released on the copyrightability of AI-generated images. And they said, given the current state of image generators, no, they are not copyrightable. And their mm -hmm. reasoning is the person operating the, the image generator isn't contributing enough originality. I think they likened it to simply giving instructions to a, a designer or something, and there's, there's not enough specificity. So I think that's interesting. But of course, these AI systems are going to get better and the, the territory is going to keep changing. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, I, I think that's actually probably a pretty good place to kind of wrap up with, we don't know. <laughs> At least that's where I'm, but I, I think that's the idea. The big idea behind, you know, making these lawsuits happen is making sure that we do answer these questions. Obviously these questions need to be answered. I think. Yes. As my, as my co-counsel, Joseph area has, has said on occasion, you know, dryly that, you know, litigation can be a, uh, a blunt tool, but it can be effective. I mean, one of the frustrations is of course a lawsuit you know, is going to take years and in mm -hmm. the interim, Yes, there's going to be so many changes in, in AI and so forth, but any kind of regulations, legislation, what have you, are, are going to take even longer. So this is where we're starting. And by the way, I, I mean, these, these cases that we've brought, we're just starting to see cases. You know, the Getty Images, the, the mm -hmm. stock image company has brought its own suit against stability. Recently in San Francisco, uh, a suit was filed against, I believe, the Lenza app for violations mm -hmm. of biometric protection law. So there's going to be all kinds of ways in which these services are challenged. And it's, again, litigation is only going to be part of it. We're right. going to be in the midst of a broader, how shall we say, social conversation about how we want to integrate these systems into our lives. And a lot of that is just going to be creating new norms of moral and ethical behavior, you know, in terms of like what we think is, is right and fair. And that is going to be the sort of the main thing. The law is is going to be the backstop. It's a good point. Yes. Where does our society go with this? And where do we broadly think that this is is fair? What, what do we want it to do? Well, Matthew, I, I really appreciate your insight into this. And if anybody wants to see the websites on the GitHub co-pilot litigation, the stable diffusion litigation, honestly, I would suggest you go look at the websites because they're really, really sharp looking websites. So even outside of this litigation, it is a, in my opinion, a good example of how to create a website for a specific purpose. And they're wonderful. So one is githubcopilotlitigation.com. The other is stablediffusionlitigation.com. So check them out. Thank you. That's what happens, yeah, when you take a typographer and let him start filing lawsuits. He's, he's going to make... <laughs> no, my favorite comment on the websites was like, what's that font Butterick's using? And uh, the truth is it's an unreleased font uh, that, that nobody's ever seen before. So you know what? Everything is a platform. It's plans within plans, man. We keep doing the typography. We do the litigation. So let's keep ramping it up. 
<laughs> fantastic, fantastic. Well, Matthew, once again, thanks for being with me. I, I appreciate it. And we'll uh, hopefully have you on sometime soon again. Of course. Thank you, Zach. The Lawyerist Podcast is edited by Brittany Felix. Are you ready to implement the ideas we discuss here into your practice? Wondering what to do next? Here are your first two steps. First, if you haven't read the Small Firm Roadmap yet, grab the first chapter for free at Lawyerist.com forward slash book. Looking for help beyond the book? Let's chat about whether our coaching communities are right for you. Head to Lawyerist.com forward slash community forward slash lab to schedule a 10 minute call with our team to learn more. The views expressed by the participants are their own and are not endorsed by Legal Talk Network. Nothing said in this podcast is legal advice for you. Thank you.